This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth is a daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, but you know, not ourselves. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. Coming up on today's show... LAUSD backs down from what started out as a strict COVID vaccine mandate for its students, pushing out a key deadline until next year. Inflation, which was already running wild, hits a 39-year high in November. Who's to blame? And with President Biden taking the blame for inflation and many more issues that could be out of his control, will he fall victim to the so-called Green Lantern Presidency. Hope it's not as bad as the movie was. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, A COVID advisor to the president joins us to talk about what we know and still don't know about the Omicron variants. We'll get a preview of the mandatory composting program coming to all of us in California next year. And then the U.S. Marine Corps, they need your toys. We start with the LAUSD backing off of its strict COVID vaccine mandate for eligible students. Glenn Sachs is a social studies teacher at James Monroe High School in LAUSD and the UTLA rep for Monroe High. Glenn, thanks for being back uh, with us. So it appears as if the uh, LASD board, LAUSD board, is going to back off. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're talking about delaying the plan. I'm guessing that they're going to pretty much scrap it. I guess now they're talking about February, I mean, pardon me, uh, the fall of 2022. Um, I think they're pretty much going to scrap it. Um, I'm not happy about it. I'm not surprised. I thought this would probably happen. I kind of thought they would go down to the last minute on it. I thought, you know, I think we come back to school January 11th. I thought they would go to like January 9th, and then we get this kind of announcement. Um, I think probably the reason they didn't do that, and probably the reason why they have done this to begin with, you know, they don't want to lose all the ADA money, hundreds of millions of dollars in ADA money for these students leaving. And they probably fear that with Christmas break coming, parents will be scrambling around to make other arrangements. Instead of getting their kids vaccinated, they'll scramble around to make other arrangements, put them in other schools. And when we come back in January, uh, LAUSD will lose all of that money. Have you had a chance to talk to some of your colleagues how they feel? A little bit. I mean, you know, I think all of us feel, you know, one, we're concerned about safety. Um, And, you know, now we've got the Omicron variant coming. Nobody knows exactly what that's going to mean. You know, the return to school is still a month away. We don't know what's going to happen. But we're concerned about safety. We're concerned that that's putting us uh, in at risk, other students at risk, and parents and community members at risk risk. And, you know, we've all had a lot of students who have had COVID or whose, particularly whose families have had COVID. And this, you know, this idea that vaccines are the enemy, I find it very strange. And, you know, parents, I hear, you know, students tell me about some of their parents, like, oh my God, I don't want you to have to have a vaccine to go to school, as if they haven't already had to have a whole bunch of vaccines. As a teacher, you know, we don't like being undercut. I don't like being in the position where You know, we're told the vaccine's important. You can get the vaccine here, get it there, go to the cafeteria at lunch, da, 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 da. And then now 
the whole thing's gone. I mean, you know, just as a teacher in any context, we don't like that. Well, you you said before that you were not surprised by what uh, the board is apparently going to do. Is that because you just presumed that they lacked the backbone? Well, I don't know that I want to say backbone, but, you know, I, I, I all along I kind of Well, I'm, I'm this... saying backbone. I, yeah. I mean, because you're, 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 you're saying that you were not surprised. So uh, I, I, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is, that, is that because you thought all along that when push came to shove, they just weren't, weren't going to do the right thing? Well, you know, I think they were trying to kind of create a stampede to get vaccinated. And I guess to some degree it was a success. I think 86, 87% of the kids have been vaccinated. But yeah, when push comes to shove, I was always concerned uh, that they would not, you know, that they would not stick with this. And, uh, you know, look, if they had stuck with it, maybe when a lot of these students, you know, finally saw that they were gonna be cut off from their friends, their normal school, their teachers, and, you know, being a completely different strange alien environment or taking classes online uh, at City of Angels, um, then maybe the students would push their parents to allow them to get vaccinated. You know, I I don't know. I'm not surprised. And, you know, look, you know, I can't say that I'm 100% unhappy about this because we all have students that we, you know, we like and we, we want them here with us. Just yesterday, I have one of my top students I was talking to her. I'm trying to recruit her for my AP class for next year. And she told me she's probably not going to be here come January because her parents are anti-vaxxers. And now she's going to stay here. I get to keep her. So I'm happy about that. But as a whole, I I don't see this as a positive. What about the idea that 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 online program, the independent study program, wouldn't have been able to handle all these kids anyways, that it can't even handle the amount of kids that are in there right now? Well, I mean, that's what we're hearing that, you know, each teacher has like 250 students and that, you know, you're not really getting to teach. You're basically just a paperwork uh, manager, you know, as the students do their assignments and shuffle their paperwork through. And you are basically like, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a manager, an accountant for the paperwork. Glenn Sachs, social studies teacher, James Monroe High, LAUSD, also the UTLA rep for Monroe High. Well, going up. Inflation, that is, when we come back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Californians are going to become composters, whether we like it or not. A statewide program comes to us next year. Before that, a key COVID advisor to the Biden administration updates what we know and what we don't about Omicron. Right now, though, inflation in the U.S. hasn't been this extreme since the early 1980s. Strong consumer demand continues to clash with massive global supply chain disruptions, plus the high cost of living, all conspiring to drive up inflation to record levels. Heather Long is the economic and financial columnist at the Washington Post. Heather, thanks for being with us. There's a whole generation, uh, I'm thinking millennials and maybe a little bit of also Generation Z, that actually haven't experienced this sort of inflation. Uh, That's absolutely right. I'm one of those people. I was born in 1982, and we currently have the highest inflation since 1982. My my condolences. (laughs) So how's it going for you? (laughs) Yeah. Well, like everybody else, I I think uh, this is why people are, are feeling the sticker shock. And I think what we learned from this latest set of data in November 
you know, the story earlier in the spring and the summer was, oh, it was those used car prices, then it was the couches and the washing machines, but it's just becoming more and more broad-based. Gas prices, one of the biggest factors in driving uh, that rec uh, very high inflation in November, but followed closely by one I think we don't talk enough about, and that is rent prices going up. Uh, rent prices now growing at about 5% annual basis, and we haven't seen that kind of growth since the early 1990s. So it's more than just the story of those goods that are you know, slow to come across from China. Uh, like the used cars and microchips. Yeah, and no matter how much of a raise you got, you're probably not getting giant raises, at least uh, for most people. So by the time you do rent and then gas to get to work and then, hey, you got health insurance premiums, then whatever, you know, your employer is paying you more to keep you on if they are, because a lot of places are kind of rising the pay to attract more workers. Well, that's all a wash. Yeah, that's right. It's it's if you really dig into the data, I'm kind of a data nerd. I would it's about 75% of Americans where the wage is not keeping up with inflation. You do have some circumstances in the lowest paid jobs where we are seeing a good bit of wage growth that's sort of right about keeping up with inflation. But these people who are working these 10, 11, $12 an hour jobs are obviously already stretched. It's not like they have a ton of extra money. Um, and, you know, I've heard some funny things on Twitter and from various friends who are like, oh, it's okay. You can just not eat meat. You know, all these <laughs> meat prices are up, beef's up like 25%, pork and bacon up about 20%, chicken 9%, fish 11%. But the reality is this is just getting so widespread that even if you go vegetarian, uh, peanut butter is now up almost as much, and eggs. And oh, so not peanut butter. Well, it's the yeah, old gripe against not peanut butter. Everyone used to come after the millennials saying, you know, if you didn't do your Starbucks and your avocado toast, well, you'd be rich. Well, no, I have to pay rent, so <laughs> it's not the toast. Which, which by the way, Heather, brings brings us, thanks for mentioning that, uh, Mike, brings us back to the rent question, because I think people may be puzzled, I know I am, why rent? Uh, is it because landlords are saying, that they're paying more money for certain things and they need to pass it on to their uh, tenants? Or is it that landlords are exploiting an already bad situation? Yeah, a little bit of all of the above. I'd say there's three key drivers. Number one is those housing prices are going up. And so, um, you know, for people who are renting out homes or who argue that the upkeep of a house, you know, is going up or they could sell it instead of renting it and make a lot more money. Uh, you know, I think the second factor um, it is a little bit more what you describe. People are taking advantage a little bit of the situation to, to rise prices, raise prices. But the third one that probably doesn't get talked about enough and this was really a light bulb moment for me in recent months to learn about this. For the first time in U.S. history, you basically have three generations renting. So it's not just the youngest folks, the Gen Z folks in their 20s. We still have a lot of millennials who are renting uh, in their 30s because they're getting married and having kids later and they can't afford. They haven't been able to save up enough to afford these higher uh, home prices. And the other thing we're seeing is baby boomers who are selling their homes and downsizing by going to rentals now. So we sort of have a, a, basically a constrained supply. We haven't built any new houses or rental units, very few during the pandemic. And now we have even more people trying to rent because they can't afford to buy. So, changing their life. so is there a big market now for huts? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, I, you know, you joke about it, but obviously a lot of what's different today versus, say, five, six years ago, you know, everybody always complains the rent is too darn high, is it used to be, you know, the Los Angeleses and the New York Cities and the San Francisco's of the world that were really driving the rent prices. That is not the case this year. It's like the total reverse. It's all those cities that used to be seen as vacation destinations or cheaper places to live or have a second home, places like Phoenix or Boise, Idaho or Spokane, Washington. You know, that's really the places that have seen the biggest rent increases so where do you go if you've already fled new york and la and san fran you got a much more limited pool now that these other places are rising as well heather long economic and financial columnist at the washington post we should rent out the studios yeah it's got everything except heat when we come when we come back president bus (laughs) when we come back president biden and the green lantern presidency This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. So a little bit later on the uh, show, Mike, we're going to talk with a uh, U.S. Marine gunnery sergeant. Now, what would you think a U.S. Marine gunnery sergeant really would like? I think I've aged out for joining up. So something else (laughs) other than me joining the Marines. Right. No, he wants toys. For the tots? Yeah. So we'll talk to, to him a little bit later. Right now, though, with the president's approval ratings in a uh, nosedive and Democrats in Congress on track to maybe get clobbered in the midterms, the White House is crying foul. They say things are getting better and uh, the things making everybody unhappy. Well, that's not in the president's control. So is this administration turning into a Green Lantern presidency? Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, longtime political strategist and partner in the Sacramento-based firm Grassroots Lab. All right, Mike, so to set the scene for the Green Lantern thing, right, he's the guy with the fancy ring, and then through sheer will, he can make the ring in the comic books and the terrible movie uh, create anything he wants. So we apply this to presidents sometimes, and is it a mistaken belief that their failures just result from that, that they don't have the willpower to get these things through? Yeah, it's a great question, and usually what we do uh, when we talk about a Green Lantern presidency is almost always it comes after a, a previous president that was um, perhaps leaving the, the state in somewhat of a traumatic situation. And so the expectations for the president bringing things back to a level of normalcy, we feel oftentimes as voters that that's just they can do it through divine right or through their own sheer power and will. That, of course, isn't the case. But th- that doesn't really explain uh, or, or that shouldn't let an elected leader off of the hook. No expectations were high. It's not uncommon for politicians to leave voters with that sentiment. And ultimately, it does fall on their desk. The buck does stop there to lead people into a place where consumer confidence is high, confidence in the country is high, and we're simply not there yet. So to to mix comic characters, how does Mr. Biden uh, in his Green Lantern presidency sort of get out of the bat cave? Because you've got you've got inflation at its highest since the 80s. You've got the Omicron variant, uh, which promises, unfortunately, perhaps a, a fourth or fifth, depending on the part of the country you're in, a wave of the pandemic. Uh, so things are not going well on many fronts. Things are not going well on many fronts, but things are also going very well on other fronts. If you look at the unemployment numbers and the number of jobs that have been replaced, the numbers are pretty significant. And, of course, I'm not here to make the case 
for President Biden. I just want to draw the distinction between some things the president can and cannot control. As somebody who's advised elected officials, all you can do is really focus on those things that you can do to right the ship of state, in this case, economically. Uh, look, a lot of this is out of the power of, of the presidency and any elected officials. And there's, you are oftentimes subject to the whims of those things that are out of your control. If you look at inflation, for example, inflation is happening everywhere over the entire globe. It's not like Joe Biden has created inflationary pressures in the Netherlands, <laughs> but, it, but, but inflation is as high or higher there than it is here. There's a global situation that is going on. That's not a real good excuse for people, or for voters. Uh, gas prices is the same thing. There's very little that the president can actually do to influence the price of petroleum, but, but he is subject to those whims. All he can do is what he can do. He has passed a significant piece of legislation to right the ship as he sees it economically. We're going to find out in the next year or so before the midterms whether or not that, that uh, the, the economy does begin to right itself. A lot of economists are expecting that we are going to see significant changes in the economy for the better by the middle uh, to end of summer. If they are accurate, it will probably mitigate some of the losses that Democrats are likely to take, but probably not enough to offset the historical trend line of seeing Republicans take over control of the House of Representatives and quite likely the Senate. Mike Madrid there, longtime political strategist, partner in the Sacramento-based firm Grassroots Lab. Yeah, so many things. Uh, Omicron variant. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. New research out of the UK gives us a better idea of how the current crop of COVID vaccines will stand up to the Omicron variants. Two-dose regimen of Pfizer or Moderna had reduced efficacy in stopping infections, but uh, getting the third dose, uh, a vaccine booster, might be the difference maker. But of course, with the current state of the pandemic, where we just barely crawled across the 70% threshold of fully vaccinated American adults pushing vaccine booster shots could be an uphill battle. Dr. Michael Osterholm directs the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He was a member of President Biden's COVID-19 advisory board. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Thank you very much. Good to be back with you. So if you had to summarize what we now know about uh, the Omicron variant and also the prospects for, let's take the world out of it for the moment, just the U.S. in the uh, coming winter months. How would you characterize everything with what we know now? It's going to be a challenge. It's just straightforward and simple. It's going to be a challenge. The whole world is challenged, so it's not just unique to the United States, but it's going to be a challenge. We still are dealing with the Delta surge which for many parts of the country is a very, very serious situation. You kind of draw a line from the Four Corners uh, area up through the Great Plains, across the northern tier of states going eastward, and now we're seeing uh, the case numbers increase substantially in the states, no longer just in the northern tier, but all the way down into the mid-Atlantic area. Uh, we are going to continue to see a real challenge with, with Delta. We've had over a 25% increase in cases in the last 14 days, and uh, the number of hospitalizations and deaths are also uh, growing again. Now add in uh, what we have with Omicron, and I think we 
surely are going to have some uh, some real challenges ahead. Now, are those challenges still majority with the unvaccinated, or are we going to have a challenge with the vaccinated people? Well, let's just be real clear in terms of the Delta situation. This is still largely an unvaccinated population problem. In most hospitals around the country that are now really in severely challenged uh, to the point of where they're no longer just talking about bending, they're breaking. Most of those cases that are in the intensive care units are unvaccinated individuals. You noted that uh, 70% of adults are vaccinated, only 60% of those, including kids today in this country are, are, are vaccinated. And when you look what's happening around the world with Delta, take Europe, for example, we have a number of countries there that are in the 80% plus level of vaccination and they are seeing serious challenges right now. So Delta is gonna continue to be a challenge. You know, I've said this, and I know this is not necessarily popular, but uh, we can't always explain why in many instances, cases, the surges begin, why they end or why they don't exist in some locations. I still believe that Southern California is primed for a major surge in the days ahead. Um, so that's Delta. Now, in terms of Omicron. Wait, 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 <laughs> stop there. Why do you think Southern California is primed for a surge in the days ahead? because you have a lot of unvaccinated people there yet, a lot. And the fact that it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't happen. You know, if I had a nickel for every time someone said to me over the past summer that we just have to be like Denmark, you know, they finally have this down. They're about 80% vaccination levels and they're letting up all, on all their mitigation recommendations and they're doing just fine. Denmark's in a lot of trouble right now. Uh, with this most recent surge, we're seeing major increase in hospitalizations, cases, and deaths. And uh, it's going to happen in Southern California. Uh, you know, people can say it won't. They don't want to hear this, but it's going to. I'm very concerned about what's going to happen over the next three to seven weeks in New York City. Uh, that metropolitan area, too, has substantial pockets of undervaccinated people, far in excess of what we're seeing in Europe, where they're in trouble, and they're even much more vaccinated than we are. All right, Doctor, hang there for just a second. We'll let you pick up on the uh, the Omicron thoughts on the other side of this. We're with Dr. Michael Osterholm, Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, University of Minnesota. We're back on In-Depth. Mike Simpson, Charles Feldman, challenging time in the pandemic. Kind of weird, too, because we've got these vaccines. They're amazingly effective. They held down hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, and then we are seeing the upticks still. We have the new variant. We've got Delta concerns about that. We've got Omicron. So uh, here we are, and we've got somebody to help us sort through this. Yeah, still with us is Dr. Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy over at the University of Minnesota. And he's uh, a member of President Biden's COVID-19 advisory board. Let me clarify that, uh, doctor. You're still a member or you were a member or what? No, that was actually a transition team advisory board. So it went from the election until the inauguration. Ah, okay. Uh, I want to also go back on what you said before the break, because uh, I think a lot of our listeners here in Southern California uh, are going to probably found what you said disturbing because I think there are a lot of people here, uh, and I've heard some of these people have a very kind of cocky attitude. They say, well, so many of us are vaccinated and things are just great in Southern California. And right now, uh, you know, we don't know anybody who's got COVID. So we're probably out of the woods. But you're saying that that we're far from that. Yes. And in fact, many of those conclusions are correct. If you're fully vaccinated, uh, including your booster, 
that's great news. Uh, right now, the incidence of COVID is very low in Southern California. But as I've pointed out, uh, why the surges start and stop, we don't know. We know that the height or the a number of cases in a surge can surely be impacted by the level of vaccination. But when you look at the levels of vaccination in Southern California, you know, they're lower, substantially lower than right now we're seeing in parts of the country where there is serious challenges. Uh, last week, Vermont, the state with the highest level of vaccination in the entire country, set an all-time new record for the number of persons hospitalized with COVID. Many of those were unvaccinated individuals. And as I've said time and time again, many people think they can run out the clock on this virus. They think that, you know, I haven't been infected yet in 18 months. I'm not going to. That's simply not the case. You can't outrun the clock. This virus will find you if you're not protected through vaccination or from having previously had infection with immunity, then you're really putting your life at, at risk right now. Please get vaccinated. Well, it's kind of like the early discussions we had with Delta before we went through the summer and maybe a lot of people kind of forgot about it or they just are done with the pandemic, right? Because that line was said by a lot of medical experts saying, you know what, maybe you avoided uh, the first couple variants of this and uh, COVID-1 was, was no big deal for you, but Delta will find you if you're unvaccinated and maybe Omicron will find you too, even if maybe it's, it's more mild, but then if you're an unvaccinated person, who knows if that's going to hold. Yeah, exactly. You said it very well. Uh, at this point, it's too early for us to determine uh, just exactly what the impact will be of Omicron in terms of the number of serious illnesses. We know that it is much more infectious than Delta, which was much more infectious than the variant before that called Alpha, which was much more infectious than the we call ancestral uh, variants that came out of Wuhan. So we're right now dealing with the kind of the king of the virus transmission hill. Um, what we don't know is, will that number of people who are likely to get infected then mean that even if a higher proportion of the individuals uh, have mild or moderate illness, there will still be more overall of people with serious illness, those who are older, those who have underlying immune conditions, those who are not vaccinated. Uh, what does that mean? And we're still trying to understand that. And so the one way to address it, whether or not it is going to be a problem or not, Please get vaccinated. How do you respond to people who are not vaccinated, but who follow the news and say, well, wait a minute, I hear about these two new pills that are going to be on the market probably pretty soon. And of course, we're talking about both the uh, Merck and the Pfizer antiviral pills. So uh, if I get COVID, I'll just have my doctor give me a prescription. I'll run down to the pharmacy. I'll pop some pills for a week and I'll be good as new. Well, I can understand why someone might say that. But let's just back up and, uh, first of all, understand that uh, these pills are not going to be magic. Uh, at least one of the uh, pills from the Merck company, uh, the subsequent data that came out in the final study showed that it was much, much less protective than uh, we thought from keeping you from getting serious illness and hospitalizations. It also is one that is likely only to be used in those who are older. Uh, we have one more, it'll be coming down the pike. And this is, again, a situation, though, where you have to start taking the medication very early into your uh, illness. Uh, you have to be found to be positive, which is going to take time in many locations before you can get put on these drugs. Wouldn't it be much better if, in fact, you tried to protect yourself 
day in and day out without having to worry about, will I have access to these drugs? What will it mean? Uh, they're not perfect. They're surely not going to mean that everyone who takes them will, in fact, not have a serious illness. So, you know, it's an important tool. We're definitely going to want to use it as best we can, but it's not the answer. I had somebody say to me the other day, why with Omicron are so many vaccinated people testing positive? That seems to be what we hear about. And then isolating in mild cases so far, which is probably a good thing. Um, but why the vaccinated and not hearing about the unvaccinated? Is it the separate groups are more likely to get a test one versus the other? Well, at this point, because it's so involved with international travel, many of the people who have been involved have been vaccinated just by the very nature uh, they were doing the traveling. Now, we're trying to understand in South Africa where the number of vaccinated is much lower. However, because of their previous experience with COVID, they have many, many more people who are already um, protected in a certain degree uh, with immunity from having had infection. And there we're seeing, even among those who have previously had uh, COVID, uh, a large proportion of having breakthroughs, infections. Now, the good news is, and this is why, again, getting vaccinated addresses not only Delta, but it also addresses Omicron, is the fact that uh, these illnesses tend to be much milder. Uh, at this point, uh, you know, I'll take uh, any day a mild illness that doesn't pose a risk uh, in terms of, uh, you know, my outcome versus one of serious disease, hospitalizations and deaths by just merely getting a vaccine. So even if the vaccines that we have now don't protect you from getting infected with Omicron, the key message is it very will likely will protect you from serious disease in most cases. So, you know, people ask, and I'm sure you're tired of the question, when will this pandemic finally be over? Any way to predict that? You know, I don't know. You know, last April and May, uh, you know, I at that point uh, said uh, publicly that I thought some of the darkest days of the pandemic were still yet ahead of us. That was not a very popular comment. Uh, people didn't want to hear it. They believed that it was merely scaremongering. And you can look at what's happened since then and understand that. Uh, you know, so for going forward, I'll have to say that we still have large segments of the world who have not been vaccinated, who are, have not yet had COVID. And in that uh, situation, we're going to continue to see uh, widespread transmission with serious illness in parts of the world that uh, uh, that are going to be important. Why are they important? Well, they're important, of course, to the people there in that country. But also remember where these variants come from. They come from places where you have lots of virus transmission, where people then being infected experience these mutations that occur, which then give us new variants like Delta, which came from India, or Omicron, which came from Southern Africa. So at this point, uh, we don't know what the next variant is going to be. You know, I say uh, uh, somewhat jokingly, but with some seriousness that I wake up every morning here in the old 1960s fifth dimension tune. This is the dawn into the age of Aquarius, <laughs> except I keep hearing this is the dawn of the age of the variants. Mm. And I think as long as variants are a part of this picture, we're going to have challenges. Dr. Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, University of Minnesota. Doc, thanks. More in-depth on the way. Another half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth, daily program that goes beyond the headlines to bring you a fresh take on the most interesting stories of the day. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Let's be honest. It's time to be honest. We're not great at sorting our trash between what's 
recyclable and what goes into the landfill with the current setup. So now throw in separating out your food scraps for composting. Things like could, you know, literally get messy. But that reality is coming for all California. I am shocked. Shocked, you say, that most people just throw everything in one bin. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, stop. Uh, you voted for it, so it's going to happen. Food scrap composting begins mandatory for all Californians, becomes mandatory in 2022. Uh, to learn more about how it's done, we're going to San Francisco because they've been doing it for years. Alexa Keelty, specialist in San Francisco's Department of the Environment's Zero Waste Program. Alexa, thanks for being here. So what's going to happen to everybody under this law? We've already got separate bins, at least most of us, right? So food scraps is going to go where? Well, here in San Francisco, we've been doing it for 25 years already, and it's really quite simple. We, we, every resident, business, event, any entity in San Francisco already separates their organics. We call it compo- compostables. So your food scraps, food soil paper, all go in a separate green bin along with your any landscape debris, your leaves, your um, small branches, and grass clippings and that sort of thing. So it's really second nature uh, for San Franciscans. It's normalized behavior. It's easy. We do it every day. And uh, when San Franciscans leave San Francisco and they go to other parts of the country and they don't have this program, they're really disappointed. And it's it's second nature to them. So for people who, who you know, for your sort of Los Angeles-based cousins uh, who are freaked out by this, what can you tell them to, to kind of calm them down? It's it's really not that complicated. I mean, right now, people already put a lot of their organics, their food scraps in their trash bin. What we're talking about is putting your, your organics in a separate bin. Usually, it's the green colored bin. Um, there's different ways to keep it clean. A lot of people use um, brown paper bags to line their bins. Um, some communities accept uh, compostable bags that are BPI certified. Um, that's a great way to keep it clean. Some folks use milk curtains, and some people even like put it in their freezer um, until um, they bring their composting out to the curb that day. So there's there's different methods to keep it clean, but it's really it's not really any different than what people are are currently doing if they're putting their food scraps in their trash. We're okay. just, it's a different color bin. So recycling and then trash and then put your organics in the green bin and then the trucks come and it goes away and what do they do with it then and how does all this get repurposed? Yeah, so we have a, a very advanced composting facility run by uh, Recology um, out um, at Blossom Valley North and it's a 60-day composting process uh, where the material is, is first sorted. There are some contaminants that do have to be pulled off like plastic, so please do not put any plastic or glass in your, in your green bin because um, there are actual people and machinery sorting those contaminants off. It's really important that we have clean material. Um, the material is ground um, and turned and aerated with oxygen. Um, and after the 60-day process, it's sold to farmers and vineyards. It's, a, it's very high demand. So vineyards and orchards love this. It actually has the ability to retain tremendous amounts of moisture. Um, it allows farmers to grow more food than they would otherwise um, because they don't have to grow that food with a petroleum-based fertilizers. They don't have to use pesticides. They don't have to use um, uh, herbicides. So you're getting healthier, more robust fruits and vegetables by using compost, and it's in in very high demand for orchards and vineyards throughout California. So is there anything with the uh, law coming into effect the first of the year that changes what you folks have been doing in San Francisco, you said for 25 years now? 
we're, we're really, um, you know, leaders in the state of California. So we advise a lot of other communities. I talk on, on a regular basis um, to how we teach other communities how to uh, in, implement a program like this, how to do outreach, how to communicate with the public and their businesses um, on how to be successful. So we're, we're kind of ahead, ahead of the curve in terms of our uh, composting program. There's other aspects of this bill that you mentioned um, that we will be implementing that we still need to work on, like maximizing our uh, edible food donations. So food surplus, we need to, uh, we don't wanna be composting food that could be eaten by people in need. So we wanna maximize um, edible food recovery and donation from our businesses. Um, so that's that's an area we're spending a lot of our time. But yeah, in terms of our curbside program, we're, we're pretty set. Um, there's not much more to do there other than our ongoing outreach and in multilingual um, outreach that we do on a continuous basis. I was going to say, I imagine that flyers will be going out instructing people what to do. Uh, Alexa Keelty, specialist up there in San Francisco's Department of Environmental Zero Waste Program. Well, you ticked it off before yeah. what you have to do. What was trash in the trash. Yeah. Recyclers in the recycle bin. Yeah. And then the organic stuff, you yeah. know, banana peels and eggshells and, and tea bags and all that stuff to put it in the green waste and they'll haul it away and then uh, it'll grow you some wine that you can then drink and put that bottle in the recycling. It's okay. The circle of life. <laughs> Can you go through that again? <laughs> yeah, we'll do it later. Okay. When we come back, Toys for Tots needs your help and needs your toys. <laughs> you're listening to. Uh, <laughs> you're listening to Mike. Uh, I could have been a background singer. You know. Really? Yeah. Like yeah. one of those guys in the back. You were like, you know, one yeah. of the pips for Gladys Knight. You wanted, to be, you wanted to be a pip? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, they're very good. There's a great documentary on background yes. singers, but also like, you know, I, I don't let the, someone sit out there and then do all the, like a lot of the work and I will be here too. Okay. See what you learn on, uh, this is, by the way, KNX In-Depth and uh, the guy 20 who 20 Feet from Stardom is the name of the documentary. It's very good. It's about background singers. Yes, and the guy who wanted to be a pip is Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. All right. Um, two and a half weeks to go before Christmas. Uh, yeah. We are in the red zone when it comes to gift buying. But uh, same thing goes for the charitable organizations that are scrambling to get all the holiday donations uh, in a row. And uh, these charities facing the same kind of supply chain disruptions that uh, we are. Which leads us to Toys for Tots, the uh, charity collecting and handing out toys for children in need. It's a long-running partnership between the U.S. Marine Corps and the Salvation Army, and they need your help. Gunnery Sergeant Jesse Tatum is a U.S. Marine and the coordinator for Toys for Tots Los Angeles. Thanks for being with us. So, so tell us, is this year proving to be more difficult than previous ones? Um, absolutely. Uh, this is my first year as a Toys for Tots coordinator for the Southern Los Angeles area, and uh, speaking with the prior coordinator, um, he he dealt with 2020 and the the challenges that came with that, and uh, I I'm kind of in 2021 dealing with the aftermath, and you know Toys for Tots has been here for a long time, and, and you know will continue to be here, and our job is, we only have one job during this time of year, and that's get toys to kids. You picked a tough year. Uh, welcome aboard. So tell us what the problems are. Is it uh, people bringing in the gifts? Is it actually finding stuff to give kids? Uh, and how the process actually works for people who aren't familiar? Okay, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of everything. You know, I think there's a lot of people who uh, are, are finally glad that, you know, they are able to give a gift, you know, physically. 
because last year with the the pandemic and everything, you know, there wasn't as many drop locations. But this year, you know, I had over a hundred and fifty drop locations in the Southern Los Angeles area, and those boxes are filling up. We're in that collections phase, so um, the community is given. Um, we had some big donors give, you know, big big uh, big supplies of. Uh, what they can you know there's a lot of warehouses out there that have toys sitting in them and they didn't know what to do with them so i worked with them to get those to my warehouse and uh that helped out a lot um but again it, it's from last year where you know we, we couldn't touch the toys or it was hard to get the toys to this year where people are getting out um i, I think we're running into an issue where uh you know maybe maybe since uh some people are possibly out of work or some people may need the toys that that that's where the the Downfall is coming is we need the toys and some people, you know, the the community needs those as well. So are, are there I'm curious, are, are there certain kinds of, of toys that people should avoid giving for one reason or another? Uh, I mean, a toy is a toy. So if it's if you think it's uh, if it's something you would want as a kid, uh, I, I like to tell people that if it was a rock'em sock'em robot you remember waking up to on Christmas morning, <laughs> that's a <laughs> that's a great gift to give because you know I still play with those with my kids and um, I'm sure opening that on Christmas Day is gonna make you as happy as you know make the the child as happy as you were when you opened that stuff. I'm, so. I'm glad you said I'm glad you added with your kids. I thought you were, you were about to say that you still play with them. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I would. It's a, it's a fun yeah. Game. Yeah. No. You <laughs> yeah. can still build Legos as Absolutely. an adult, right? Yeah. 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 Right. Um, are you worried at all that things cost more now, and that's discouraging people? I mean, we talked about inflation earlier, or that you know, some places that maybe used to be back at work, so they'd put a big bucket out front and have all the coworkers come and drop something off. Like, is it still hard for some spots to get a toy drive going? So people who can step up and get to some of the other sites uh, definitely should. Um, I mean, uh, the. The community, some of the, the bigger companies, because where I'm at, there's a lot of uh, uh, industrial parks. There's a lot of uh, trucking companies, things like that. They they really stepped up this year. Um, cable companies, they they really, you know, were out there, you know, working not just with their uh, their employees, but getting those into their stores and anywhere they could. So this week and next week, we're picking up all those toys, and we're we're pretty surprised on some of some of these drives and. Uh, I, I think toys go up every year in price, but uh, there's always that that those people that want to buy those and you know give them out to to whoever needs them. So so that is definitely seeing that. Why did you want to do this? Um, honestly, I since I mean when I was a kid, uh, you know my my was a, my mother was a single parent, and I remember waking up to toys every Christmas. And as I got older, I realized that they weren't purchased by her they were given to her by a church and a uh you know local community members and family members just to make sure that me and my brother would wake up to something and that you know knowing that and knowing what i'm able to do this this christmas is is definitely motivated me to make sure that every nonprofit, every family who requests a toy gets it and if if somebody doesn't get one this year then um you know i take that personally and i you know i'm gonna i'm gonna make sure that the next year I do this, everybody gets one. So it's it's just a, it's my mission right now as a Marine, and I want to complete that mission. And the only way I'd get that done is the community and the, the people out there and everybody who wants to give. So um, help help however you can. You know, go to your local Salvation Army. If you see that that white box with the red letters and Toys for Tots, throw whatever you can in there. Um, 
I, every time I see one, I make my kids buy a toy and we we throw <laughs> it in together. So um, even though I'm working the, the program, I still don't still the program. So you mentioned Salvation Army. Where else can people find a drop-off site? Um, if you go to the Terminal Island uh, .ca .toysfortots .org, you can go there. There's a drop list. Um, we are coming to the end of our our collections, but we have a warehouse here in Bell, California. That if you, you're one of those those donors who wants to just get those toys to a child, um, you can find us on the website and and drop them here at, at our at our warehouse. And again, there's. There's elves in there working night and day to separate the toys that we get. And, you know, I'm looking forward to this deployment to the, the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Gunnery Sergeant Jesse Tatum, U.S. Marine, coordinator for Toys for Tots LA. Thanks for talking to us. That's In Depth for the week. Back on Monday, 1 p.m.